Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey everyone, I'm Nick DiMatteo and welcome to week 217 and video episode number 43 of Music Is Not A Genre. Each week I take a release or two from my collection, I discuss them, I give you my take on them, I throw in some other interesting information and connective tissue, and I connect it to my music and to things out there in the non-music world. If you like this podcast or my other podcast, Music Is Everything, or any of the live or recorded music on this channel, please take a moment to subscribe. It would mean a lot to me. I don't know why I said it like that. It really, it really does mean like subscribe, but it means a lot to me. Um, and, or if you know someone who you think might be interested in what I do and all this crazy music talk and all the stuff on here, please take a moment to either share this video or another video or share the channel itself and ask them, them to subscribe, join the family, you know. Um, this week, is the third of my four-part series on illusion. And remember, I have to do that. Contractually, I have to make those, those uh, hand gestures uh, in music and in art in general in the world. And this week is focusing uh, in particular on sound manipulation, on, on the illusions that are created in the studio. And you know, that's why if you look below, I titled it Psychedelic Man Like So Trippy. Um, and you may, you may know or not know why I would have chosen these two albums, which let me just name them up front before I get back to them, because you know I like to go on. It is uh, the 1968 album eponymously titled Naz from the band Naz or The Naz, uh, featuring among others Todd Rundgren, who's over here. Yes, I am the weatherman. He's the one all the way there on the left. And uh, this is the Moody Blues, which is a collection of their singles and um, a couple of other things uh, from 1974. So it chronicles the band's development from the mid-60s up until that point. Uh, both bands have large uh, psychedelic and studio manipulation elements in their music. So that's what kind of, you know, uh, that's why they fit into this series. So this, this third of four parts. The fourth one will be this Saturday. Uh, so if you've been following along with my podcasts, you might know two things. One is that this is the third episode of this four-part series on illusion. And the second, second is that I love working in the studio. I love the studio. I love, look, I love performing. I love writing. I love, you know, rehearsing, uh, doodling and all that stuff, all of that but the studio is where I really thrive. Um, it's also true for the graphic design I do and stuff like that. It's just that idea of having kind of like a sandbox or a, a palette of things to use that put together to create something, right? And 
Uh, that's why this episode is about what can be done in the studio. But it's more than that. And you'll see that it goes beyond just, okay, you know, people can do pretty much anything in the studio. Let's go back a little, right? So from the beginning of recorded sound in the 1800s, late 1800s, engineers and artists have known it's not only possible to, to capture and preserve sounds of all kinds, but it's also possible and fun to manipulate those sounds um, from the beginning, you know, and at first... The, the manipulation was just about kind of practical things like volume or clarity or is it coming from the, you know, uh, you know, left or right speaker like eventually when, when stereo came in. And then it was about um, taking, doing multiple takes and splicing those takes together to create one, per, one, one performance that was the ideal performance. So one great version of a song where... Uh, someone, you know, performed great in the first half, not so great in the second half, or missed something in the, you know, solo or whatever, what have you, or vocal was better in one take than another, when it was all still single tracking. And then it became multi-tracking, two tracks, four and beyond, till it's almost infinite, uh, depending on your processing power these days. And that became then about layering, about uh, starting with, let's say, a live performance of something, uh, whether it was one element of the band or, or orchestra or artist, uh, or multiple together live and then layering on top of that. Um, and that points, all of that points to a huge, you know, part of what I'm talking about here, which is that all recording is illusion, all of it. And why? Because, okay, yes, there's a value to capturing sounds as close to pure as possible. You want to kind of chronicle something, yes. But even that is an illusion, and it's because, well, it's because you're capturing a live sound that is no longer live, but it sounds live. So it's a little bit of a little bit of an you know, aural trick. Uh, and that's the simplest level of what makes that an illusion. It's a way to trick the listener into feeling like they're hearing the performer in real time you know, and in ideal conditions and with no barrier between them and the, you know, the sound and the performer, you know. And so that at base level means that all recording is an illusion of, of somehow. But of course we know, especially now, but from through, you know, through history, that it goes way further. Partly what I just talked about, the kind of steps into how much more complex recording has got, which means the uh, ways to manipulate recording and create illusion uh, have gotten more complex and more diverse as well. Um, now, you know, a couple of years before these two bands debuted, um, really, and really, I guess, sort of, honestly, right around when uh, the Moody Blues did debut, because I think they started in 64, and their first album was 65. So right around that time, 65, right? Um, the Beatles got into, heavily into what could be possible and be done in the studio beyond what they could do live on a stage. And that's why we have uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver and their work beyond that. But that's where it started. And that why was around when other bands as well and other, other types of music started realizing that you could manipulate and layer and add elements and maybe, you know, take, they used to use actual tape back then, and one day I'll show you, I have some from an old, old uh, session of mine, and let's say reverse it and have a part played backwards or things like that, or cut it up in a way that made it kind of a collage like Tomorrow Never Knows, 
or for the benefit of Mr. Kite and things like that, uh, sound collages and things. Just the, this, there's so many ways you can manipulate even back then when it was all analog. And that's when they really started kind of pioneering the idea that what, uh, what happened in the, st in the studio no longer needed to be an exact representation of what happens or could happen live in a performance. Um, it, it would take decades before performance technology would catch up to the point where things like that in the studio could be recreated live. And even then, it's never quite the same. The studio has infinitely more, I think, possibilities of what you can do with sound, with music, with all of that um, than, than, you know, than live has. And uh, these bands you know, inherited that. There was that idea of psychedelic rock and et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, that's, that's all. It's a kind of a very small version of what I'm talking about here, which is that let, let's take a, a voice and give it a flange or a chorus or a heavy reverb or an echo or delay or things like that, that, you know, some of which exists in the real world and some of which really does not. Or you'd have to go thousands of miles or hundreds of miles to find that that exact sound and be able to do all that in a small room you know and so these bands if you know anything about them and honestly i didn't know that much about naz or the naz uh either name apparently is correct i don't understand um other than that todd rundgren uh co-founded and he's famous as being kind of an ex uh, both pop, but also pop experimental, progressive pop, you could almost call it a songwriter who, who, you know, gained fame mostly in the 1970s. Like, I don't want to work. I want to bang on the drum all day. I think it was his big head. But he, Hello, It's Me was another big one. Well, he started with this band and the band was uh, from Philadelphia, where I'm from. And uh, from the beginning, they started from this album, 1968, this one here, started manipulating sound. And that's why they were kind of called psychedelic rock and all that. And the Moody Blues, you may know better, had a ton of hits from the 60s through the 80s. And um, they were known as kind of an orchestral rock, orchestral pop band. Uh, and from, from Britain, so from Philly, from Britain. And they did, you know, Mellotron was one of the big uh, sounds, the, the keyboards that they, you know, used, they kind of helped to pioneer the use of, let's say. I'm not honestly sure it was the first, but they were one of the first. And that idea of creating not just a song or a production or an arrangement, but a sonic world, like, you know, something that you could be immersed in, uh, the you know Brian Wilson with all his stuff. The Beach Boys certainly did that. Uh, the, his his contingent of Beach Boys songs, um, and yeah, the Beatles and the Moody Blues were another band that really kind of uh, reveled in that and thrived on not and on mixing actual orchestral sounds with rock band sounds with pop melodies and, and interesting words that could go from normal to weird. And then, um, you know, uh, sounds that manipulated sounds and, and, and electronic sounds like the Mellotron and then washing it all in various different kinds of effects. And, uh, you know, somehow still making all of it, uh, work. Uh, but honestly, and I, you know, I've said this before because the songwriting was so was so good, and the performance was also very good, and and they didn't get lost in the kind of psychedelic uh, of what they were doing, um, 
they always grounded it in something and kind of made it, you know, heartfelt in a lot of ways or introspective or this, that, and the other. Uh, and, and, bec- and that's the thing that I think was the greatest trick, the greatest illusion of all of this is that these bands are creating these sounds in the studio, which, you know, when rock and roll started, it was the kind of thing where you went in and recorded an album in an entire day. You know, you just did the songs that you did live, did a couple takes maybe sometimes, and then boom, you were done. And then it was layering, 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 you know, as the years went on to the point where it could take months or, you know, years to finish an album, depending on so many factors. But I think the biggest factor, it, you know, that, that, you know, kind of weighed in on that was the fact that it was possible. You know, that there were so many possibilities that you could start a song in one year and finish it three years later and have added million different things in between or changed it. And what you end up with is so different what you start with. Um, Strawberry Fields is a perfect example. That was that was sort of more just like a folk song that was a little faster. And then they slowed it down. They slowed, That's why when you listen to John Lennon's voice on there, you can hear that slower. You know, he's got a bit of a lower pitch. They slowed the whole thing down and then added all the, you know, crazy stuff on top of the, you know, acoustic guitar and all of that. Uh, and that's something, man, the Moody Blues, you know, I don't know if they did so much slowing down things, but they did a lot of that. Well, let's start with a simple song like this and layer it. Um, even a song as simple as Ride My Seesaw, which was before they really got into it, and it is on this album, you know, has that element of manipulation to it. Um, a lot of echo and things like that, and then sounds that you're not quite sure what they are until you really listen and and all of that. And and again, this is just all in service of the fact that everything, every, there's, there, everything in art, you know, not everything, but the vast majority of what goes into art is an illusion of some sort, is some kind of a trick, is some kind of a, you know, starting with this and it becomes this, you know, an illusion. Yes, that's right. I did do that hand gesture. And I'm actually going to get more into... Um, why that doesn't matter in the final episode this Saturday, part four. Uh, so stick around for that. Um, now, like I said, I love the studio and it's partly because I'm just free to do whatever and can come up with the best versions of things, but it's also because it's fun to manipulate. It's fun to say, you know, I like that sound, but I kind of want it to be this. I kind of want the voice to be higher or the keyboard to be more crunched and things like that. Just the way you can EQ something or put effects on something to manipulate it is just really exciting to me. I thrive on it. And it pushes me to to kind of release what I think of as boundaries and create more and more interesting things and things that go in directions I may, you know, never thought I would have or could have years before, you know. It's what I hear in my head. Can I bring it out into the studio and into the world? And, um... There are dozens of examples of this and the stuff I do, but, you know, to keep current, my band Rec's most recent EP, Symphony for the Weird, the opening track on there is a song called The Accumulate. And that is kind of a a modern kind of a electro-psychedelic rock song. Um, I recommend you listen to it to understand uh, what I'm talking about. Um, matter of fact, I also did a cover of the Moody Blues song, Lovely to See You which had that same kind of electro rock psychedelic feel. And I included that link here too, so that you could, you know, kind of 
compare the two and compare it to the original. And, uh, you know, that's why all these links are there. So you can kind of research even further because, you know, in the end, I want to hear from you. I want to know what you think about all this. I want you to think about my music, about the music of these bands and other great bands related to this. Um, do you remember Todd Brungren? Do you remember Nas? Do you remember the Moody Blues? Do you know anything about them? Uh, are you into obvious full-blown sound illusions like psychedelica or, or certain kinds of electronica? Or do you prefer kind of the uh, simple everyday illusion of all other kinds of music, not all, most other kinds of music that are the, you know, that are the simpler, like this is me playing a guitar. Still, there's still an illusion to it. That's the point I'm trying to make here. I want to know what you think about all of this. Um, does it matter whether something is close to the bone, raw, real, quote unquote, or uh, more tripped out and, and manipulated? Does it matter? Is it, do you, are you more interested in, you like the song, you like how it sounds? Uh, please let me know in the comments below. I want to hear everything you have to think about this, whether you agree or disagree, like or hate any of this or me or what I'm talking about. I want to know, um, because as always, my objective here is uh, music, conversation, and connection. Thank you so much for listening, for watching, for reading, for clicking, for sharing, for subscribing, and uh, I'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.